Alrighty, cool. Let's keep going on fatal strategies here. Um, and I'm starting from the sub-chapter, the subsection titled The Evil Genie of Passion. So he begins this section by laying out the distinction he makes between loving something and seducing something, or between love and seduction. So for him, he prefers the form of seduction which maintains the hypothesis of an enigmatic duel of a violent solicitation or attraction which is a form not of response but of challenge, of a secret distance and perpetual antagonism that allows the playing out of a rule. I prefer this form and its pathos of distance to that of love and its pathetic reproachment. I prefer the dual form of seduction to the universal form of love. So another way that we can think about this is um, in terms of his criticism of desire, where there is the assumption in desire that there is a wanting subject, and a subject that not only wants, but has a certain understanding of that want. Whereas seduction is not something that one can necessarily control. So seduction then, for that reason, as I've made abundantly clear, I think, uh, is opposed to production. It's opposed to the possibility of rendering uh, productive or mobilizing any sort of energy, be it libidinal or otherwise. And he attaches to seduction a, a, a highly emancipatory quality, one that, that one that would allow for the dissipation of many of the oppressive forces that govern um, our society and, go, and that governs our world, notably um, forms of discrimination that come down to the crystallization or the maintenance of a, of a thing called identity. So when these things, when a thing like identity has been crystallized, solidified, then creepy, creepy, then uh, oppressive forms of control or surveillance can creep in and take control over said identities, where seduction never is never satisfied with a singular identity per se. It always arrests things out of their comfort zone and places them in another space for it to then be taken out of. So it kind of, it, this idea resonates somewhat well with the Deleuzean concept of deterritorialization, where in the process of deterritorializing, there is something of a territorialization occurring. There is a sort of connection to something called the singularity, but that is always already going to be displaced, going to be uh, deferred off into something else, sort of perpetually. So this sort of radical approach that Baudrillard is laying out here, and this is my way of speaking to those people that have been commenting, like. Um, is Wow and Gable's Guitar Studio, who have been who have made it, y'all have made it really clear that um, it's not as though there's nothing to get out of Baudrillard here, but really he's he's describing something. So I want to try to uh, entertain this idea that you know there might be something here. So the way in which I locate it actually comes out in this passage where where there is no longer a game or rule. A law and effect must be invented, a mode of universal effusion, a form of salvation to overcome the separation of souls and bodies, to put an end to hatred, predestination, discrimination, fate. This is our gospel of sentimentality, putting an end to seduction as fate. So it's only when we have sort of codified the world, and this, this is how I understand his concept of the code that kind of runs uh, throughout his earlier work. Um, and in order to 
present anything of a challenge or something of a challenge, it must not adopt that same kind of hyper-rational um, codifying language that relies on, I guess, the sentiments of some kind of enlightenment, uh, a residue of some kind of enlightenment um, positivism that will allow instead for something like superstition, religion might be a little bit messier to put into here, but how um, spirituality, how anything like that that disturbs uh, the kind of finality associated with scientific rationality or with the system itself, the system of production, um, anything that would oppose that would work in this case. So one of the examples that Baudrillard gives, and I can't uh, exactly recall where, might be in his cool memories, in, in, in some of his other works, it comes up a few times, but he uh, often evokes the Marx Brothers, so the classic uh, kind of um, slapsticky type uh, humor of the, the Marx Brothers that really play on how we understand language. And he gives one example where one of the Groucho Marx, I believe, is trying to enter a um, kind of uh, secret, um, a secret club, to which the only way to enter is by saying the password, which is swordfish. Now, Groucho Marx comes to understand this as actually needing to burden oneself with carrying a swordfish to the door in order to gain entry. So what that does for Baudrillard is not play into uh, any sort of cultural logic, like it falls outside of that, but it still is bound up with, you know, that process of signification in some way. And it makes a mockery of it, which is really important. And there are uh, things to be said about how mockery, how kind of turning a gaze back on itself by showing how ridiculous it is, can be a sort of subversion. And it's something I've tried to uh, sift out with Homi Baba's work and uh, how post-colonialism often envisions, well often, at least through him, how it envisions um, resistance through that process. But it makes it clear that there is really something that can be done. And it, although it is enigmatic, although it is elusive, it does take the form of a sort of uh, enigma. It does take the form of, a, of an illusion. So love for Baudrillard, that thing that stands opposed to seduction in some form, uh, is, marks the beginning of the law. So to kind of grasp this, uh, his discourse around uh, rule and law, um, we have to look back at seduction, so the text seduction, and how he states that the rule corresponds to uh, a sort of radical evaluation that can undergo certain changes that the law does not allow. So the law prides itself on a sort of universality or, or sort of a priori that does not allow for the possibility of its transformation. So Baudrillard is not interested in that, or, or he's interested in critiquing that in favor of implementing a thing like the law that is up for negotiation, that is up, that can be challenged. And in associating itself with the law, love makes a crucial mistake because it takes itself to be real. Now this is the same in relation to something like sexuality or sex itself. It takes itself to be uh, real. And in order to demonstrate this, it comes out in hyper-real forms, that is like pornography or anything like that, that give it a face, that give it a hyper-real face that, that sort of crystallizes it. So for, for Baudrillard, there is no real right? There never was a real. Now this is important and something I continually come back to, where it's not as though Baudrillard's advocating for a return to something real. If there is any rhetoric or any discourse around that, it is in the service of 
maintaining or bringing back something like an enigma. So the real is that which can be analyzed, dissected, traced, whereas the illusion or the enigma is, is something that cannot be evaluated in such a way. Because these, um, I guess these kind of tools of scientific rationality, that is um, observation, dissection, are, are not present in illusion. So it's from here that I'll move into the next chapter, which, which starts to spin a little bit, or it starts to go into another direction, thinking about the relationship between the subject and the object. And we saw something like that with the uh, relationship between the scientist and the rat, where traditionally understood the scientist being the subject would look at the object and would have a sort of privilege over that, and Baudrillard reverses that idea, suggesting that it is the rat that is observing and, and uh, essentially making a joke of the scientist. Baudrillard wants to rethink this relationship here. So the first section titled the supremacy of the object just immediately takes that into account and thinks about the way in which the object is can be privileged over the subject and he explains why and this is because the subject is of the order of desire while the object is at the of the order of seduction because how we would understand an object and i think it wouldn't be too vulgar or it wouldn't be too outlandish to take a literal object like a lamp so if we were to input this idea of seduction on a lamp, at least thinking about this in Baudrillardian terms, it is not as though the lamp desires to be turned on, but it's by the lamp being as such, you know, it's being grounded in a sort of system of objects and having a certain purpose in that, that we are seduced into turning on the lamp. We are seduced into being, uh, using it for that reason. So, well, and me framing it in that way, is not exactly proper because it's not as though it is of our own volition that the lamp is turned on but it is by the seductive allure of the lamp's ability to be turned on that it seduces us into doing that whereas throughout the whole history of philosophy this Baudrillard states individual subject or collective subject the subject of consciousness or of the unconscious the ideal of all metaphysics is that of world subject the object is only a detour on the royal road of subjectivity and when we think of this we really think of this thinking of this in kind of neutral terms now what I mean by that is that in relation to the earlier part of this text when Baudrillard was thinking that there is something of a loss of a, of a certain subjectivity kind of post-human um, Baudrillardian subject lost in the in the wake of terrorist hostage or the, or the mass media or anything like that um, we are operating that we are pretending that hasn't had an effect for the moment and he'll come to trouble that a little bit so when we think of the relationship between subject and object, we just think about it neutrally where you have a, a, a viewing or a gazing individual that sees the things around them, the world around them, and can then gobble all that up. Now this has been pretty uh, evident throughout the course of history, especially in the domains of philosophy, and other, other thinkers have taken, taken this on a little bit, you know, thinking about the relationship between humans and animals, for instance, that Derrida thinks about. Uh, taking Heidegger to task or, or Gombin, um, thinking about these things in these terms, but there is even in those analyses um, a belief that, or uh, almost like an extension of this idea of humanism or the human onto those other spheres. So when we think of Derrida, and he's careful not to do this, but we can still see it a little bit, 
in the animal that therefore I am. Uh, he inputs onto the animal sort of human characteristics, like think, thinking beings that, in a sense, you know, in proper Derridean fashion, like point to the limits of our own humanity and then call into question what it means to be that, that human only in relation to the animal's being, or whatever that, whatever that might be. And of course, it's much more nuanced than that, and I hope I'll do that at some point, that, that text. But what is interesting here about Baudrillard is that he's not so much interested in extending this human uh, subjectivity onto other spheres. Rather, he's interested in that thing that's very much not a subject, very much not a human. And I am uh, conflating these terms a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit more nuanced, this idea of the human in relation to subjectivity. Like, I think it's, one could argue that a pencil can have subjectivity in this in this framework. Uh, but just for now, I hope that you, you'll humor me with this. But even in this sort of neutral moment, everything for Baudrillard, because the object is associated with seduction, everything derives from the odd object just as everything derives from, sed uh, derives from seduction. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means that because seduction is that which allows things to come into being, allows things to move from wherever they are destined into something else, then that is what causes, you know, it, it, it kind of pushes the movement of history in that very, it's kind of Hegelian in that way, but it kind of moves history in some way or other. So subjects are just derivative to that. So it's a sort of reversal where he says, very, um, I think very correctly, that the subject has always been the interest of history or philosophy, whereas for him, no, it's the subject is a consequence of the object. Now what that has culminated into, if we consider his analysis of terrorists and hostages and the loss of a sort of subjectivity, is the arrival at what he says is paradox, where at this conjuncture, where the position of the subject has become untenable, and where the only possible position is that of the object, the only strategy possible is that of the object. We should understand by this, not the alienated object in the process of de-alienation, the enslaved object claiming its autonomy as a subject, but the object such as it challenges the subject, and pushes it back upon its own impossible position. Precisely because the subject was never that privileged position, it was never so comfortably uh, within the space that it claimed itself to be in. So the object is that which returns the subject to its mortal transparency. And not just thinking about um, individual subjects' mortality, but rather the notion of subjectivity being something that was just came into fruition very recently, uh, and that is destined to its end, to come to its end, and it's kind of kind of similar to Foucault's thesis at the end of his, or his um, proposal at the end of the order of things, and it, and it does hold in some way here. So for Baudrillard, what is particularly interesting about the object is that it does not believe in its own desire. The object does not live off the illusion of its own desire. The object has no desire, because the object cannot um, mobilize its, I guess, its power to evaluate or reevaluate the subject. So in that way it kind of stands radically opposed to the subjectivity where it's not just the mirror of subjectivity, I should say, where it's not just something that can take, uh, can take its own, I guess, 
power of seduction, and then use it against the subject. And so it could be said, I think, and I'm going out on lamb with this, a limb, lamb, I don't actually know that expression that well, that Baudrillard's earliest text, The System of Objects, can be read as uh, something of a, of a subjectivity manifesto, where we organize and create systems of objects to kind of conjure away the possibility of seduction being housed in objects. So if we place them under a certain control, then they no longer hold that sort of radical potential, where they are then given up to the logic of the code, where they then meet a certain uh, obscene standard under the auspices of what will have you, fashion or design or anything like that, the obscenity of uh, beauty. And it is that is one of the strategies employed by the remnants of the subjectivity to try to crush the possibility of the object's challenge. So another such example is uh, the case of children, which Baudrillard spends an interesting amount of time dealing with, where the child doesn't correspond to an ontological fact, right? This idea of childhood is, is a construction in some, in some capacity. And so it is the construction of the child as object, in a sense, that does this sort of undoing of subjectivity. So what, how he says this is that the child deep down knows that he is not a child, and he is not concerned with the affectation of liberty and responsibility with which you wish to dignify him in order to better to dignify the pedagogical difference between adult and child. He competes rather on equal terms. He is neither free nor inferior, and leaves it to others to believe that. He envelops you with his shamelessness, for which precisely all means are justified. He can choose to play up difference, to play the fragile child facing the adult, and you then owe it to him to protect him, to valorize him, to attenuate the difference. Or else, at any moment, he can choose to return you to the absence of difference, real and fundamental. Childhood doesn't exist. There is no child. Just like there is no rat, right? And I think it would be a little bit too simple to say that, you know, these are just linguistic terms that don't correspond to any sort of reality, uh, because I think we should take them as being real in the context of Baudrillard's analysis, where you have this real thing called a child, a created thing, but still real, nevertheless. But it's that construction of the child and all the codes associated with it that give it a sort of, um, that operates as a very good analogy or metaphor for our relationship to objects, where there is a sort of infantilizing tendency to reduce objects to the sta status of um, sub subservience, oh my god, subservience to uh, subjects or to the person us using them, but that can always come back on us, and it can always be made apparent that the objects are not simply at the whim of the, the subjects or between the adult and the child. The child is not simply um, to be protected by the adult because they cannot protect themselves, but possibly it is that the child, because of their construction as child as such, have stumbled across a certain secret and have allowed themselves to be, uh, like, what better way to make people protect us in that way. Now, this case of the child and the, um, and the parent can be extended, and he certainly extends it onto the 
distinction between the sexes if we work within the within the parameters of a binary classification where traditionally the idea is that well very very much the reality uh, men hold power over women that are very much objectified now this is really I think it's hard to refute and I think that he's he's on point with this and for him it, it is that theory of seduction that challenges that not because women have like are are uh, represent seduction even though he often uh, conflates the two and uses them interchangeably but because seduction is that which takes anything that might be considered naturally man naturally woman or whatever and then takes it from that certain position and throws it out of wax so the binary between masculine and feminine fold into one another where the two are called into question now one of the other things that stands opposed to seduction for Baudrillard that he takes aim at is psychoanalysis and especially uh, psychoanalysis as it is imagined by Freud where he says that the whole problem for Freud was how to destroy the wild event of seduction and then he goes on it is a paradoxical situation for analysis when it refers to dream material for precisely in this fatal per perspective the dream is event while in analysis it is no more than a symptom the same is true for madness, neurosis, and the parapraxis. Everywhere, psychoanalysis has missed their eruptive, elusive, seductive power, bypassed them as facts, and made of them mere symptoms, stripping all sovereignty from the eruption of things, from the magic of appearances, and from the challenge they imply, pushed them back to the, to the particular subject of interpretation. Now, I think that he's right on with this, uh, in how we, how, especially when we consider mental illness, how that is constructed, how it is viewed as something that must be corrected, how it... I don't know what that awful noise was. It was terrible. Uh, how it must be constructed and how it must be configured to fit within a certain order. Now what that does is deny the possibility that such what we call illness isn't of itself, rep it represents a singularity. It is something that it is perfect within itself and can exist. It doesn't need to be conjured away, it doesn't need to be corrected, but that is simply because we input that idea onto it because of the messed up uh, situation we find ourselves in. And it is that idea within psychoanalysis that affirms the idea of the subject, as Baudrillard states here, for it is from psychoanalysis that this inconceivable hallucination of the individual about his own desire proceeds, that we see that really the um, not the establishment of, of a real individuated uh, being that represents something in themselves that can stand apart from others. Like that's what etymologically, like what individual, individual means, it is something that can't be divided, something that is perfect. So what we actually see, and this is where it, it's paradoxical, where becoming an individual does not mark yourself being separate from but it actually means that you are part of a system. So a good way to put it would be if everyone are, is an individual, then no one is an individual. Where individuation is in itself part and parcel of this system of exploitation in that way. And Freud participates in that, at least in how uh, Baudrillard reads his theory of psychoanalysis that always brings it back to the individual, that makes it a case for the individual to come out from themselves to make themselves known to themselves and then operate as a supposed free agent in the world that has determined them as such. So it's like playing in, it's like the Matrix, like 
how free are you in this in this system? No matter how free you think you are, you are always uh, part of that, um, I guess, part of that matrix. So he sees this happening as well in, in some strands of feminist thought when he say, when he states that, um, uh, oh my god, this is the dirty trick played by modern feminism, itself misled by psychoanalysis, to resuscitate the feminine as a dangerous, archaic, fusional power is in some sense to side with Freud, whose purpose is to bar the mother's power of absorbing desire by the name of the father. So this obviously doesn't encompass all strands of feminist thought, and I don't think it's wholly indicative of any, really. Um, he doesn't quote any anyone here. We're just supposed to take him at, at his word here. But the the point is still important, and he, he does quote Irigaray in another text. But what he's getting at is how it, it, no um, social struggle or no political action can be effective if it is mounted uh, or if it is being driven by the notion that there is some kind of like ontological certainty in the case of the sexes here of, of women being or the idea of the feminine being something that resists um, the masculine which ironically is his central thesis in seduction but it is how the feminine being associated with women that is where he sees the problem and by tracing it giving it a history in that sense is where he uh, parts from that line of thinking that would otherwise, I think, have some affinities with what he's getting at. But it is a shame because, like in the case of of, uh, of, of feminism, at least in where I would think, and it's perhaps I haven't I've only scraped the surface, but where there are some affinities between Baudrillard and that, that line of thinking, um, he sees that there is a lost potential in psychoanalysis, that is thinking about dreams. So dreams are something that for Baudrillard really evokes the idea of a challenge, really evokes the idea of illusion in a sense, not not in the simulated way, but and in brackets I would put if I was writing this, and in the simulated way, it marks something of an ambiguity or an enigma that has been lost. So for Baudrillard, dreams used to have a secret. Freud gave them a sense. Dreams used to be closer to a destiny. With Freud they approached desire, but they lose this enchantment, even a wicked one, giving way to the work of the unconscious. And in contrast, of course, to the codifying tendencies of the of Freud's theory of the unconscious lies chance. So for Baudrillard, the power of events that happen to you without you having willed them, without your having anything to do with it, but not by chance. They happen, and this coincidence touches you. It's destined for you, even if you didn't want it, because you didn't want it, you're seduced by it. That's the whole difference between destiny and chance. For pure chance, even supposing that it exists, is entirely indifferent to us. Pure occurrence has nothing seductive about it for us. It's objective, period. It is this strategy of chance we adopt to neutralize an event or attenuate its effects. It happened by chance, not my doing. The accidental death of a friend of someone close cannot fail to arouse some guilty fantasy. Where chance is that thing we use to explain random occurrences in the world, because we have live in a system that is so well structured in the way he has been describing it that the only possibility where that some sort of negativity sort of enters it is caused by, it is brought about by something that cannot ever be known but it is an unknowing, it's almost like a hyper-real version of the unknown where we are, we have, don't even attempt to locate anything of an enigma behind it anything of an illusion behind it or having some mysterious property of the universe but it is that which just happens. 
And it, he, he lays out as something of a strategy in this, and something of a pragmatics, where he says that speed itself is doubtless only this, throughout and beyond all technology, the temptation for things and people to go faster than their cause, to thereby catch up to their beginning and annul it. As such, it is a vertiginous, vertiginous, vertiginous mode of disappearance. But writing is another, going faster than the conceptual connections. This is the secret of writing. So, he continues, This is why our system, essentially Western, has replaced it, chance, or uh, d destiny, with another procession, that of the cause to the effect, and more recently with the procession of models, the procession of simulacra to things themselves, whose apparition they conjure up in a different mode. So in opposition to all this, that thing crafted by the West, or at least that is indicative of the West, uh, what stands aside from it or outside of it is the remnants, is what we could think of in relation to ceremony. So the ceremony where everything is initiatory in the sense that nothing happens excess, except by way of the necessary intellectual sign of its apparition. Nothing changes except by the necessary intellectual, intellectual signs of its metamorphoses. So in that way, how things are ascribed a certain meaning, not necessarily into the ages of some kind of scientific rationality, but that have some sort of rapport with, uh, with, um, I guess. And this is where this is where it gets complicated because how are we to hierarchize um, scientific rationality and then the logic of let's say ceremony or illusion or the primitive quote unquote societies where there are just in different ways, t attempts to codify the world, or how religion does it. But we have to kind of uh, work with him here and assume that there is something, I guess, a little bit more emancipatory or liberatory about these other forms of understanding or organization that do not rely on these hyperreal schema. But he continues about the ceremony, stating that it, this is the ceremony of the world. It's perfect ordering which is the opposite of subjective desire and objective chance. Desire and chance are stricken from the ceremony. It is no longer even a metaphor. There is no rhetoric, no allegory, no metaphysics in the text of the laws of Manu, which he quotes uh, pretty extensively here. And he goes on to say that this is all secretly what we want. We have a weird, uh, kind of odd compulsion towards disappearing. And he thinks that that's possible that we only came to be beings or humans or, or individual subjects in this oppressive framework where some people would think that that is something to applaud for him even if you're starving even if you live in a hut that is better if you are operating under the uh, auspices of illusion or of a sort of um, ceremonial type system where all that you know is that and you give yourself to that. You are one with it. Whereas us as individuals are separated from everything else, separated, and, and it's very illusory. And in that sense, like, it could be said that we are always already in the ceremony in that way, and that it's, we've just seen, uh, we've just seen an extension of it to this, but that, that would be a, that'd be a good conversation to have with someone else. This, Anyways, he, he kind of gives us something here where he says that ceremonial violence appears not as a transgression, but as an exacerbation of the rule, where the whole world is suspended in, in the interruption of the game, where it is that distinction, and we have to kind of assume as well 
that the rule is better than the law, or the components of the game are better than that of the social or society. But it, it, it presents how the ceremony is a sort of transgression, or in a, how he puts it here, where he continues that all ceremonies are in this manner violent in their unfolding, but this violence is that of the reversibility of the rule, not that of the transgression of the law. The sign drags its opposite along with it through the very power of signs as such. In itself, the connection of signs and ceremony, the fact that they can succeed and engender one another solely according to the rule of the ritual, already constitutes a violence done to the real. Precisely because I think it, there, there is that um, sort of mobility implied with that. Or in how he puts it here, it is a regulated unfolding where it is something that is allowed to develop and it is something that does develop, that is not structured, that is not grounded, right? Where we take the idea of the human, for instance, an idea that wasn't ever really consolidated, if we think of Foucault, uh, before uh, 18th century, 19th century, but it was something that was consolidated nonetheless, that would be indicative of a hyper-real model, or the order of the law, that gives something a face, that is the human. Now, the human was never because it would never uh, abided by the laws or conventions prior to that time, then it could be said, at least if we accept Baudrillard here, that there was something of a regulated unfolding, where that thing called the human, not ever being such, was allowed to develop, was allowed to become other than itself. So it is for that reason that he's able to say, where there is spectacle, ceremony ceases, for it is also violence against representation. Because representation does not imply the free movement of things, despite our celebration of, uh, you know, the, I guess, the democ democratization of media images. For him, that is just feeding into that very system. And it's, uh, I find it interesting how he locates ceremony then, you know, being part of the system of change or flux, where he says that it is always sacrificial. Which makes sense, because it's not just a sacrifice of bodies, but certainly a sacrifice of ideas, a sacrifice of even the thing called movement itself, allowing for a slowing, or a speeding up, or what have you, instead of just, you know, exponential growth, speed for the sake of speed. It sacrifices, or it opens up the possibility of sacrificing everything. So that pushes us in, into uh, chapter 5 here, which I think would be the last one, yeah. And he starts it out, well, doesn't really start it out, but he, he wants to think about what a fatal strategy is. And for him, there's only one, and that is theory. So what is theory, and how does it work in favor of his project here? And we can hear echoed in this uh, sentiment by Severa Lopinger when he says that theory may actually be a way out of theory. So there are those oppressive tendencies of theory, the ones that Baudrillard really takes it, or took aim at in some of his previous books, thinking about the mirror of production or his critique of Foucault and, and uh, psychoanalysis. These, these modes are, are something that he wants to get out of, right? So thinking of theory as a way out of theory, or thinking about theory as a fatal strategy, a fatal strategy that I think we wouldn't be so far off, likening to the idea of sacrifice indicative of the ceremony, where it drives anything to its possible logical conclusion, it is prepared to sacrifice any idea, any notion, to open up, right, possibility, or to close possibility. 
which is one reason why I think because it, in order for anything to be properly effective, it has to take on what has been characteristically understood as evil, right? So for that reason, he writes, what is in inescapable in a word is the principle of evil, which we must take on if we were to take on this this system. But at the same time, he, he's critical of evil and thinks of evil in many different other ways, and that's for another time we'll uh, work through that. But he continues here, saying that the subject obeys our metaphysics, which has always tried to distill good and evil. The object, however, is translucent evil. This is why it shows mischievously, diabolically, its voluntary servitude, bends willingly, like nature, to any law we impose upon it, and disobeys all legislation. And when I speak of the object and its profound duplicity, I speak of all of us in our political and social order. So, for the subject clearly reflects to its dismay the evil principle in its mirror, but the object wants to be worse, and demands the worst, so that driving, even the idea of the fatal two uh, extremes that it could not even fathom, in order for it to match, in order for it to meet that accelerating logic of the system itself. But it is ultimately seduction, that which, which is fatal. It's the effect of a sovereign object that recreates in you an original confusion and seeks to surprise you. Fatality, in turn, is seductive, like the discovery of a hidden rule. The discovery of a hidden rule of the game is dazzling and compensates us in advance for the cruelest losses. So it's on that note that I'll wrap this up because uh, it's kind of the same, although I will read the last little bit. I, I like the last little sentence. Uh, paragraph where he says that in end in the last if in the last judgment as everyone knows for each of us in saving and eternalizing a moment of our lives and a one only with whom do we share this ironic end if we can say that the end would ever actually come now just prior to this you know to keep going a little bit uh, he says that you know the idea of the human will never actually or human humanity itself will never actually come to an end not because humans are invincible but because we are too obsessed with our own spectacle, right? We couldn't imagine the idea of not being here to keep producing ourselves in our own image, which for him, I, I think, is a good a good enough point. There is a sort of obsession with um, the media machine, especially the self-broadcasting media machine, something that I'm engaging in here. But there, this this obsession goes runs really deep, and it's part of this very system of um, solidification or crystallization, right? That wants to see everything be um, taken into itself and made to be precisely itself, which is hard to swallow. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess on that note, like there were sections that kind of um, moved over kind of quickly. Not because they're boring or anything, or it's not even that repetitive. I find this text to be one of the least, uh, well, not least, but not as repetitive as some of his following works that I'll be getting into. But um, it's a good one. Like I like this one of my favorites for sure, and I'm sure I've said that about every single one of his texts so far. But in relation to some of the queries that were um, proposed. In the last video I did here, like I don't think there are, there's no clear answer to this, which does not mean that we shouldn't think about it, or think that, uh, I mean perhaps all there is, is the possibility of illustrating a system, 
and conceiving of a of a solution to it would be it's out of our out of our hands like we are not gods and it would be like with the system itself we we cannot locate it and find a solution for it at the same time like solving figuring out the velocity and location of a particle uh, you can't both things cannot occur at the same time and like some people made abundantly clear um, the system moves faster than we are able to analyze it which I think that you know we could weirdly enough I'll say that we could take Baudrillard methodologically here like maybe he, he's driving even those other modes of theory dare I say like Marxism psychoanalysis or Foucauldian thought saying that like, that's not throughout the baby with the bathwater, but let's actually conceive of the possibility of these modes of thought matching the logic of the system. But then that could also mean um, catastrophe, what it, whatever that would look like, because capitalism, one of the driving forces behind this whole uh, system, has relied heavily on, on Marxist thought. Sorry, Marxists out there, but has relied pretty heavily, at least in the, by being its negation and that's how it's been pushed in in public forums. But there is something to be said about that. So what would it mean if we see an acceleration of Marxist thought? Would it we see an even greater acceleration of capitalist thought? Who knows? Maybe we've got to freeze everything, put it all to sleep, cryogenize, cryogenetically freeze this system until we can figure out what to actually do with it to slow it down. But yeah, and anyways, for anyone that check this out like some of the some of you people that were commenting before I hope you make it through this one and you point out some of the, um, my shortcomings uh, and throw some good questions my way because so far what you've been doing has been really stimulating but for now for anyone who made it this far thanks a lot and uh, take it easy